Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the theme of misinformation. I'm Jonathan Birch. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy here at the LSE, and I'm terrified. I'm terrified of the world that we're living in and that our children are growing up in, a world in which a cocktail of lies, half-truths, delusions, conspiracy theories will lead to people storming the US Capitol building or will lead to people refusing a COVID-19 vaccination. And I have no idea what to do about it. Our aim in this event is to go deeper into those problems, to think about what we might call the social epistemology of misinformation. What are the reasons that lead people to believe false things? Why, what makes it so seductive? What makes it so persuasive? And we'll also be trying to go deeper into the solutions. What needs to change for our society? What do we need to change as individuals? And it's a real pleasure to be joined by three top experts on misinformation. Uh, Kaylin O'Connor from UC Irvine, co-author of The Misinformation Age with James Owen Weatherall. Kasim Kassam from the University of Warwick, author of Conspiracy Theories. And Lisa Bortolotti from the University of Birmingham, author of Delusions and Other Irrational Beliefs. We'll be talking for the next 75 minutes about these issues as a panel, but we'd also like to hear your questions. You can type your questions at any time into the Q&A box on the Zoom webinar or on the Facebook live stream. Towards the end of the event, we will select some questions for the panel. I doubt, given the timeliness of this topic, we'll have time to consider uh, every question. I want to start by asking uh, all of the panelists a, a simple question. We often talk about misinformation as if it is something that affects the stupid, you know, that it is, as academics, we're somehow immune. We've all got our misinformation vaccination when we got our PhDs. I don't really think that's true. So I want to ask you for an example of a time when you've been taken in by a piece of misinformation and how did you get out of that situation? How did you find out that you believe something false? How did you correct it? Let's start with you, Kaylin. Um, <laughs> well, it's happened to me many times. I think it happens to everyone. Uh, one time in particular I remember is that there was this meme going around in the US in 2016 um, in the run up to the presidential election. It was a picture of Donald Trump and then a quote from him that said it was from People Magazine. And the quote said something like, if I were to run for president, I'd run as a Republican because they're the dumbest voters in the country and I could lie and they'll eat it up. So that was the supposed quote. It's just entirely fabricated, but it's kind of, you know, liberal clickbaity, right? Um, <laughs> another time I'll just share uh, is that I was once actually in a podcast talking about my work on misinformation where someone brought up the belief that you know there are these spiders we call daddy long legs I don't know if you have these in the UK we do um, <laughs> school children tell each other that these are the most poisonous 
biters in the world, but that their mouths are too small to bite you. And someone brought this up as an example of a false belief. And at that moment, I revised my belief from childhood that these very common garden spiders were the most poisonous spiders in the world. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I'm not sure they're even spiders. Are they? I don't know what to believe anymore. Lisa, what about you? Uh, I guess it's embarrassing for a philosopher of science to admit that, but um, I guess at different points in life, I've had a number of uh, pseudoscientific beliefs about the about things. Um, like as as a young girl, for instance, I used to read horoscopes and actually believe that you know star signs are actually <laughs> saying something interesting about individuals and their behavior. Um, and when I was um, still in school, I had uh, lots of problems with back pain. And at the time, I remember doctors were telling my parents that um, surgery would not be appropriate to have too many risks. And so I was kind of directed to uh, chiropractic. And for many years, I had, I had uh, sessions um, and I tended to believe uh, all the things that I was told about the immense uh, benefits of, of manipulation for a number of things until I realized that it was actually a very controversial issue. And, and I started reading up about it and, and many of the things that actually I was told, I realized didn't really make sense or were not really consistent. But it was like a very kind of, uh, in a way, painful discovery. It's like investing lots of time in your life into something that might not mm. actually have a, a lot of scientific basis or not as much as you initially thought. How about you, Kasim? Uh, well, my example is where I actually still don't know whether I'm the victim of misinformation or not. Um, so th this is a kind of UK example, but at the end of last year, there were all these stories going around that the so-called Nightingale hospitals had been dismantled. Um, and there's a whole spate of these stories with uh, photographs of, you know, supposedly these dismantled Nightingale hospitals. And then you had the, the health minister coming up saying this was an outrage. They hadn't been dismantled and they were they were on standby and ready to admit patients. And if you actually Google have the Nightingale hospitals been dismantled, if you Google that now, you'll find just a hell of a lot of contradictory information about that to this day uh now maybe maybe you know someone's discovered the answer to this question definitively um but i haven't so i'm actually still you know somewhat in the dark about this so either the misinformation was coming from the people who said it was dismantled or from the minister but i don't know which yeah i think those covid19 examples are particularly frightening i mean i have an example of that type too which was about uh, almost a year ago now in February, when Italy was experiencing a very severe outbreak, there was a recording that went round on the internet, supposedly of two doctors talking to each other in Milan about how they could no longer treat anyone over 60 because the hospital was so full. And this was so credible that it was even uh, picked up by the ITV News website briefly, but they deleted it when the hospital released a statement saying this just isn't true. So that was how I found out it was false. But I was initially completely taken in by this. And that's truly frightening. The, the sheer sinister nature of someone going to the lengths of faking a telephone call between two doctors. I want to, at least to this question, really for you, Kaylin, about the misinformation age. I mean, how serious a problem do we have? Is it that really misinformation has been around for the entire history of civilization and we're just talking about it more 
now or is there really a sense in which we have a distinctive problem now that has got a lot worse well misinformation has been around since the dawn of human communication basically but i still think there's a distinctive problem now that's gotten a lot worse so here's what's been around as long as people can communicate you know they can spread ideas share information with each other you can think of that as kind of opening a door and good information can go through but once the doors open of course sometimes bad information will go through too that's just going to be part of the process so that's always happened as far back as you can go um, but what we've been seeing recently are very rapid changes to the structures of communication. So rapid changes to media that mean that people can communicate to each other in new and different ways. And we've had lots of changes in media over the course of human history. You know, the invention of written language, the invention of the printing press, the invention of radio, of television. All of these change the ways in which people can communicate and to whom and how quickly. But then if we look at the invention of the internet, it's like every six months we have a new form of communication emerge. So it's TikTok or it's WhatsApp or it's Twitter and there's new ones popping up all the time, right? Um, and inherent in this process, the sort of fast changes is the fact that we don't have time to kind of react to the change and find ways to control the spread of misinformation, false beliefs and propaganda on these new forms of media. So I think what's really changed is this speed of alteration of social contact. Mm -hmm. And that has allowed a proliferation of an enormous amount of misinformation and false content and pernicious influence on, uh, you know, people everywhere. So you really think social media has transformed the situation in that there's a sense in which it just moves too quickly to be regulated. You try to regulate it and then it's changed. Yeah. And I, you know, I still have some hope that we'll find ways to regulate social media in general. But even if you look at the ways um, when people propose particular new ways of responding to misinformation on social media platforms, often those responses will be invalidated or um, made obsolete just by the next development, right? Um, so <laughs> th there's, there's hope, but it, it's quite a difficult problem to regulate misinformation on all these quickly changing platforms. And can I ask what you think the effects on democracy are of all this? Is, is it the case that, I mean, not just in America, but in Europe and the rest of the world too, is it that democracy has always faced threats of this type and is pretty robust against them? Or should we be really worried? I mean, I think this is quite a serious threat to democracy. We've seen cases in the past where propaganda does threaten democracy, but in general for democracy, to function, it rests on an assumption that people can make good choices for themselves, right? And in order to make good choices, people have to have their own values to know what they want, but then they also need to have accurate information about the world because if they don't know what's true about the world, then they can't vote to represent their own values effectively. 
So whenever you have really widespread misinformation, whenever you have a public that's widely misinformed or confused about key topics, they simply cannot act in their own interests in a democratic society. And of course, that's going to cause enormous problems to the functioning of democracies. Mm, so the misinformation, in a way, gives people a false picture about what promotes their own interests. Yeah, I think that's right. So I mean, if you poll people in um, many Western countries, they'll say they don't believe that climate change is happening. Uh, these same people will often value the preservation of the world for their children, right? And so if that's a value they want to preserve, if they don't understand that climate change is real and is a real threat to that value, then they can't act to preserve that value. And Kasim, I'd like to bring you in on this, I think, because part of the picture here is conspiracy theories, isn't it? People becoming drawn into a world of conspiracy theories. You know, as you see it, where does the, where's the borderline between a perfectly sensible theory and a, and a conspiracy theory? Um, well, so, so just picking up on what, what Kaylin was saying, I mean, I think if you talk about misinformation, right, so, so misinformation can just be a mistake, right? So if I, if I tell you that San Francisco is the capital of California, and if I believe that, then that's a piece of misinformation. Um, but the, the, the difficult case is, is, is disinformation, which is basically misinformation that's dressed up to look like as information. And, and, and disinformation, I mean, can be highly effective as a way of manipulating people. Um, and one form of disinformation or one form that disinformation can take is conspiracy theories. Um, so I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, every conspiracy theory is a piece of disinformation. But, but, but if you look at, you know, something like uh, conspiracy theories about, you know, the Sandy Hook killing in, in, in America, right? So this was when some guy went into an elementary school in Connecticut and, and killed 20 kids and six teachers. And suddenly Infowars was peddling the idea that this thing had never happened, it was all fake and so on and so forth. I mean, that, that well, number one, that's disinformation, right? And, and number two, um, if you ask, well, why would, they, why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody want to you know, promote that theory? I mean, the explanation is, is not that you know, this is a serious attempt to explain what happened at Sandy Hook. Rather, it was really, uh, you know, it was an attempt to deflect arguments for greater gun control in the light of in the light of that event. You know, so that was disinformation, well, manipulative disinformation with a clear political agenda, um, and I think that mm -hmm. is really what I think many uh, conspiracy theories fundamentally are. So they're forms of propaganda, forms of disinformation. Mm -hmm. So it's really the the motive that makes it a conspiracy theory, the motive that who cares about the truth, what I want to do is promote a specific political agenda. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, interestingly, the, the, the Sandy, the guy, Alex Jones, who was respon partly responsible for peddling this theory, of course, when, when the parents took him to court uh, and he was under legal threat for peddling this theory, of course, he then said, oh, well, I didn't really believe it. It was, I, 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 I promoted this theory because I was suffering from psychosis or something like that. Right. Uh, and that's a kind of, you know, and that's a kind of classic example that, that if, if, you know, if you, if you press the producers of these theories, if you distinguish between producers and consumers and you really press the producers and ask the question, do they actually believe their own theories? I mean, the answer is, well, actually, probably not in many, in many cases. 
do you think that the originators of these theories genuinely are mentally ill or, or is it a, just a, an excuse? Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I even believe that Alex Jones's own account of his own situation. I mean, I think, I, I think the promoters of these theories do it for political, you know, for political reasons. I mean, so if you think of, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in the, you know, in a way, these are, these are the archetypal conspiracy theories. I mean, well, what's, you know, why do people promote anti-conspiracy, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories? Because they're anti-Semitic, right? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's, that's really what's going on with these, uh, with these theories. And of course, historically, these theories have been, you know, uh, highly, highly effective and indeed lethal, if you think about the history of these theories, mm. and, for example, their role in, in, in the Holocaust, which is, I think, quite, you know, quite significant. Mm. Um, so you think so I, I want to emphasise, you know, it, it, you know, uh, paraphrasing Bill Clinton, it's the politics, stupid, right? That's, <laughs> that, that's what I want to say about these theories. Mm, so it's the, it can be a way for a, 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 an ideology to communicate itself. You think in a case where an ideology can't be spoken, you know, like anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories can be almost this this hidden language in which yeah. the the yeah. movement recruits new followers. Yeah, so, so I mean, of course, conspiracy theories are integral to extremist ideologies, in particular to far right ideologies. And, and of course, some of these are overtly anti-Semitic, but of course, they also use code. You know, so the current code for Jew is globalist, right? Uh, and and so so now you have these theories about you know globalists doing this, that, and the other. These are just what well, this is just anti-Semitism. Right? Uh, and 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 these theories are promoted and and used. Um, to you know to forward their own political agenda and mm. although I don't think it's I certainly you know don't want to claim that everybody who believes a conspiracy theory is an extremist I think it is mm. true that the vast majority of extremists do believe conspiracy theories and that's part of what it is for them to be extremists mm. so you think we need to distinguish the the originators of the conspiracy theory from the believers I suppose and we've got these two puzzles in effect what 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 is going on with the originators and what is going on with the believers yeah. and your answer in the case of the originators is that it's all politics that there's there's an ideological political motivation behind the creation of conspiracy theories yeah yeah and i mean that you know with with believers too i mean the theories that believers believe but you know may well be ones that fit with their broader political outlooks i mean so there's a piece of research which shows that in in the american context that democrats were much more likely to be truthers or put it the other way around truthers were much more likely to be to be democrats whereas birthers uh, were much more likely to be republicans now i mean that's that you know there's no mystery about that right? because i mean um you, you know you have the conspiracy theory that fits in with a wider sort of political uh political outlook so so you know that's part of the part of the answer, but I also think that talking about belief is also a bit problematic, e even in the case of consumers, because you know lots of people who are interested in conspiracy theories, you know, they may retweet them or you know talk about them, but that's not exactly the same thing as as as, as believing them. So I think we need to also mm. look at the, you know, the different ways in which people engage with conspiracy theories, and believing them is one way in which people engage with conspiracy theories, but by no means the only way. Mm. Okay, let's bring in, in Lisa on this, if, if we can. I mean, we've thought about the originators. What about the believers? I think of this as being your speciality, I suppose. What leads people to believe these theories that sometimes on the face of it are very implausible? Yes, I, 
totally agree with um, Kasim and his analysis, and especially this distinction between um, producers and consumers of conspiracy theory, I think is illuminating. And you are absolutely right that in my research, I've been interested in different forms of irrationality, spanning from those forms of irrationality that are extremely common, widespread in the general population, um, and forms of irrationality that are quite unusual, that are usually um, the, the present as symptoms of, for instance, um, psychiatric disorders. Um, and one thing that is interesting in the recent commentary on conspiracy theory, um, which I think um, has got even more lively at the time of COVID because so many conspiracy theories are COVID related, is, but, but was actually there before. I can think, for instance, climate change as an example, is this idea that commentators tend to uh, talk about people who consume conspiracy theories as being deluded, right? And so they have this analogy between the conspiracy theory and the delusion, delusion being this unusual belief that uh, people subscribe to uh, in, in some circumstances when they have uh, mental conditions such as schizophrenia, dementia, delusional disorder, and so on. And that is something that really interests me this analogy, which I think is becoming stronger, at least I wasn't seeing it in the popular press as much as I see it now. It interests me because in one sense, on the one hand, I can see the point. And the point is identifying some kind of continuity in the type of irrationality that humans seem to be particularly vulnerable to. At the same time, um, it's unsatisfactory because very often in these opinion pieces, the analogies are brought forward, but actually the disanalogies are forgotten and there are important disanalogies. So I'm, I'm, I'm committed to finding a lot of continuity in the different forms of irrationality that characterize the way that humans think. And uh, I want to say that even in the case of consumers of conspiracy theories, many of the psychological um, needs that they fulfill by uh, endorsing to some extent, if they believe the theory, uh, such a theory, are needs that we all have. And they are exactly the needs that bring humans to form theories to explain reality. So there is a lot of uncertainty uh, in the world. There are lots of things happening. It's not always clear what the relationship is between these different events. Mm. And we have this very strong tendency to identify causal relations. So cause and effect. When something happens, we want to know why. And that's extremely important to our survival and also to our, our capacity to navigate the environment, but also kind of engage with other people. So navigate the social environment. We need to be able to explain why people do certain things so that we can predict what they will do next. So we've got this really, really powerful need for causal explanation. And the theory satisfies that needs. Now, there are good theories and bad theories, of course. So not all the theories that satisfy the need for causal explanation are theories that we should be happy to follow. Um, we need to kind of investigate the theory. But in times of crisis, in times of uncertainty, and especially taking the COVID-19 case, in times where, at least at the beginning, even the experts are divided, 
and don't give us clear answers about what the truth is like because science is discovered and people make mistakes and fix them. Um, in those situations, the need to control something that is potentially destructive and very significant for people's lives because all of our lives have been affected by this particular thing uh, brings you to uh, look for causal explanations. If they are not easily provided mm -hmm. or if the ones that are easily provided do not fit, as Kasim was saying earlier, with our previous conceptions and beliefs, with the way in which we already see the world, then we look for a different way of explaining it. And sometimes we fall for theories that are really easy, that are not complicated, that we can report to other people and make it look as if we're knowledgeable about things. But also, we fall for theories that identify a culprit, right? We like theories where the event that is destroying our lives is not random, it's not a natural occurrence, otherwise we'd feel even more powerless in front of it. We want the event to be caused by someone, some person, some organization, someone we already hate, someone we don't trust, right? And that's where the conspiracy comes up. Um, and I'm not trying to say that that's the right approach. I'm just saying that this tendency to identify things as something that someone has wanted because they want us harm, because they are hostile to us, because they want to gain something, is actually extremely widespread. It's a form of intentionalism, seeing intentions everywhere, even when it just happened. And so all these theories about the Chinese developing um, COVID-19 into a lab and spreading it, making it look like it was a natural occurrence, these can, can kind of be an example of that. But also theories where, you know, Bill Gates is the one who wants us to get vaccinated so he can control our movements, right? Mm. So that explains this attempt to identify a source of the problem, because once you have the source, you have the beginning of a potential solution. You can prevent it next time, mm. right? If you take the culprit and punish them for what they have done, you may have some reassurance that it won't happen again in the same form. So it's very comforting truth, psychologically. Mm. It's starting to sound like you're giving us a, a manual for how to construct a really great conspiracy theory, that basically you need someone to blame, that big complicated events, you find someone you can pin the blame on, and then you've got something that, particularly if people are predisposed to perhaps blame that person or kind of person, for things they'll be naturally drawn to that it makes it sound like a very cynical business doesn't it putting together a conspiracy theory do you think it is um no i think it's just a natural tendency we have i think that's the first thing we think of and then on reflection we think oh no it might just have happened right it might not be anybody's fault but i think it's our natural reaction like i don't know whether you've got siblings right but when something bad happens you always say to your mommy was my sister mm. right is, is that it's a very natural way of thinking about things we never tend to attribute responsibility for bad things to ourselves or to our group we always yeah. tend to think that the bad things come from outside that said I don't want to give the impression that conspiracy theories are completely baseless. Um, you don't pick out a person at random, as I said, there may be previous beliefs that lead you. Some conspiracy theories are very inconsistent. So for instance, people who think that 
um, COVID-19 doesn't exist, may also at a different point in time think that it's less severe than it's supposed to be. Um, but the, you know, the two things don't really match together, don't really fit together very well. So there could be inconsistency, there could be theories that are not supported by any sort of evidence or argument, but not all conspiracy theories are baseless. And that what is particularly challenging for us as educators mm. and as philosophers is try to think about, is there a principled way in which I can tell that this particular theory is supported by bad evidence? Because it's not unsupported. You know, they have reasons, they have arguments. And this other mm. theory is supported by good evidence. Who gives the stamp of approval, mm. right? Who tells me that the origin of this particular piece of evidence is reliable, is something I should trust? And what tells me that indeed is something that I should be careful about? I think that's the big problem, that there is no easy way of doing that. We can do it. I think as Kalin was saying at the beginning, it's not impossible to think of solutions, but they are extremely challenging. They are not easy solutions. Because if I have good reasons, and some people have good mm. reasons, to mistrust the government or the science or you know the establishment in general, because in my life I haven't had the support that I needed and so on, yeah. then all the information that comes from those sources becomes something that I'm careful about, that I doubt, that I question, mm. that I do not necessarily endorse. And to be honest, about these very complicated issues like climate change and COVID-19, we do trust experts because we ourselves cannot go out there and get the evidence we need, yeah. right? It's not direct evidence, it's not observation. We do need to trust someone. And then the question is, how do you decide who to trust? Yeah, what do you think about this question, Kaylin? The how to decide who to trust? I mean, sometimes we should mistrust the government, right? So it can't just be that there's this class of experts that one should always trust so what do we do well i mean there there's two questions here is one who should we trust and the second is who do we trust mm -hmm. so if we look at who people do trust there's been you know quite a lot of research in the social sciences on that topic and there, there are a bunch of things that go into it. One thing is that reputation does matter. So reputation, someone's reputation as an expert or a truth teller or someone who ought to know about this matters. Their personal reputation as a cool person or a good person or a likable person matters. So we trust celebrities more than everyday mm. schmoes. <laughs> uh, do but shouldn't. Do but shouldn't. So this is the do part. Mm. Um, then there are quite a lot of tendencies to trust members of your own in-group. So people of your own race and gender, of your own um, nation, of your own religion, but also like people who like to play football the way you like to play football or whatever it is, and people who share beliefs with you. So all of that goes into deciding who we trust. Of course, some of those things make sense, like expertise and reputation and past truth telling. And then a lot of those things don't actually help us listen to people who are more accurate. Um, in thinking about what sources we should trust, as you point out, some experts aren't actually trustworthy. And as someone who's a novice, it might be hard, very hard to distinguish between those experts. I often say to people, you know, look at the incentives of the sources that you're looking at 
And um, that can often tell you a lot about what sources to trust. So if you look at some of the very reputable mainstream news sources, the BBC, the New York Times, whoever, they have reputations for truth telling. The only reason that they're allowed, that they have an audience is because they're known as reputable truth tellers, right? And for that reason, they have fact checkers. And for that reason, it's very much much in their interest to provide mostly accurate information most of the time. That's not 100% of the time. Scientists tend to be under very similar incentives. Um, it's not that scientists always tell the truth or are always right, but they are under a lot of pressure to tell the truth and they can lose their positions and certainly lose their reputations and lose the respect of their colleagues if they um, commit fraud or purposefully lie or something like that. So those kind of incentives can point you towards the best sources available, I think. Mm. I mean, that received wisdom about people's incentives is one of the first thing a conspiracy theory targets, isn't it? It says, you think the New York Times is impartial, but ah, look at this. They have secret incentives. You think the climate scientists can be trusted, but no, they have secret incentives. So it's very, as soon as you're taken in by that, yeah. The trust in these authorities is very quickly undermined. That's right. That's a lot of what makes conspiracy theories insidiously powerful is that they include these meta beliefs about who is trustworthy and they shape people's views of who could be trusted. Mm. I mean, Kasim, what's your solution if, if you if you have one to this? I mean, you say that conspiracy theories come from people who are politically motivated, ideologically motivated. Isn't, isn't everyone though, to some extent? How do you tell the, the, the bad cases of political motivation from just completely benign cases? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the problem here is that you're not going to find a kind of refutation of a conspiracy theory that is gonna satisfy a committed conspiracy theorist, right? So, so if you say you're relying on, on, you know, you're relying on bad sources of information, you should rely on, you know, the New York Times or whatever it is, of course, as you say, they'll have, they'll, they'll have a story about why you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, there is something really difficult about the idea of arguing someone out of these theories if they're really truly committed. Um, just mm -hmm. as it's difficult to get someone out of a cult, I think, if they are, you know, if they're true, if they're true believers. And, and you know, so then the question is, well, well, what, you know, kind of what do you do? How do you, you know, how do you address this, you know, how do you address this situation? I mean, my own view is that, is that, is that there, there are kind of two dimensions to this. I mean, one is that, you know, we're not just dealing with true believers. There are lots of people who are what, what I call conspiracy curious. I mean, people who have some interest in conspiracy theories, but are not fully committed. And I think that's where we should be really aiming whatever argumentative resources, you know, that we have, the sorts of things that Kaylin was just point, pointing out, you know, which actually might be very helpful in dealing with people who, who are not already, as it were, too far gone. But when it comes to people who are, you know, absolutely, you know, kind of gung-ho committed conspiracy theorists, how are you going to get them to change their minds? I think, I don't think there's much much you can do. I think actually what happens is life moves on, you know, and, and often there are things in their lived experience that change their views. I mean, so there was someone on, on the news that I saw the other day who was being interviewed in a hospital who had um, just given birth to twins despite having, you know, been on a ventilator with COVID. And she said, well, before I came to hospital, um, I used to, I was one of these people who didn't believe that COVID was real. 
uh, and now I now now I you know now I know that I was wrong, you know. So that's a that's a, that's a kind of case where you know rea reality makes itself felt, you know, where reality bites, and often that is mm. you know actually the only thing you know, with those sorts of theories that, that, you know, that actually is going to shape someone out of their, believe that, you know, their commit, their commitments, you're not going to do it by argument in many of these cases. It's becoming harder and harder, isn't it though, to have that sort of jolting experience, that sort of confrontation with reality or with someone who holds the opposite view. We have, we have this problem of echo chambers, don't we? That if you want to only hear people who share similar opinions, you, you can. Is there a way to escape that situation? Yeah. yeah. So there was this, you know, there are people in the States now who say that, you know, they don't trust the mainstream media and they, they you know, they're going to rely on their own sources. So they, they inhabit a kind of epistemic bubble. Mm. Um, and, and um, it, it, well, you know, it's possible that, um, you know, something will happen in their lives that will change their, which will change their mind or, They'll just get bored with this stuff, or they'll fall out with other people who are in that group. I mean, there's any you know, whole variety of, as it were, non-rational causes for people mm -hmm. to move out of, you know, to move away from that, you know, from that world. But but I but I do think that you know, for those of us who are, you know who don't think conspiracy theories are particularly healthy, it's really the conspiracy curious, the not completely committed that we should be focusing on um, mm. in, the, in the first instance. And I think that's actually the you know that's probably most people category right that there's the the core i suppose the hard core of originators and true believers that that's a bit cult-like but then you've got this large periphery of people who are just trying to weigh up who to trust yeah and i don't know you know if you if you've had exchanges with the hardcore conspiracy theorists but I, I'll, I'll say one thing about these folks is that they have boundless reserves of energy you know there is there is no way that you can outlast one of them in an argument because they will go on and on and on, you know, until 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 you are exhausted, uh, and it, it's kind of hopeless. You know, it's just it's just a hopeless task trying to, you know, in those cases trying to win an argument. And of course, they will say, well, the reason you don't win is that you know we have the better arguments, right? So, um, but often, you know, you 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 get into a situation where all you can really do in these cases is to just kind of walk away and 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 just concentrate on people where. There's more hope of, um, uh, of you know, of, of changing changing their mind. Jonathan, maybe if you can give a little bit of hope. Um, so I, I I agree with with Kasim that sometimes it's very difficult to try and persuade with reasons and argument uh, someone who believes uh, in a in a conspiracy theory, and the reason is that. Um, very often these people have already invested a lot of their time, but also a lot of their social life in yeah. ways that uh, make them even more committed to those particular beliefs that seem to uh, be compatible with the conspiracy theory, because maybe they've made some people who share the same beliefs central to their social lives. Um, and in general, we all are extremely mm -hmm. resistant in revising beliefs that we are 
truly committed to. This is an absolutely widespread bias that we have. Uh, we um, update our beliefs asymmetrically, right? When something comes up that seems to suggest that our existing belief is correct, we take the evidence to be robust and we update our belief to be even more confident in it. But when we receive evidence suggesting that our existing belief is wrong, we tend to dismiss the evidence, to discount it. So this is a not surprising. Bias. Yeah, it's not surprising at all. So this makes us think that, as Kasim was saying very eloquently, it's actually very difficult to get someone out of a conspiracy theory if they are committed mm. to it. At the same time, I think we can focus on prevention rather than cure. We can create an environment, and this is something that we can all do together. It's not any particular part of society that has the responsibility to do, to do so where this kind of mistrust towards official accounts, especially towards science, can be prevented. We can make sure that young people are educated to um, manage their lives on social media in such a way that their critical perspective is always there, is always present, and they always ask questions about the information that they receive. Um, we can try and suggest what questions they may ask. We can create an environment where the people that we are supposed to trust are actually trustworthy, because um, I think something that uh, to me is, is very powerful is many consumers of conspiracy theories have been, um, have, have had um, experiences that suggest that they shouldn't trust the people who are governing them, that their concerns have not mm. been present. Uh, their interests have not been safeguarded. And so it's fully understandable that if they have to um, mistrust someone, they mistrust the people who have um, not taken their interests at heart before. So all of this prevention thing is difficult to achieve. It's lots of different aspects and factors that come into it, including education, um, including science communication to make it more friendly. Um, and to make it um, easier for people to digest. Also to impress some people that sometimes uncertainty is inevitable. <laughs> um, to kind of make mm -hmm. people realize that they can try and live with uncertainty in some situations because there is always something that they can control, which is their own behavior, the way they react to the uncertainty. So if people try to think about a theory that helps them control something that they cannot predict, for instance, COVID, you know, we cannot predict what is going to happen, even now, after so many months, not even the experts can tell us co with confidence what is going to happen. But we can intervene in some way, we can intervene on ourselves, on how we behave, on whether we go one way or the other. Mm. So I think there are ways that we can create this environment that is more hostile to conspiracy theories that are harmful. But it's yeah. a long term project, it's not an easy fix, unfortunately. Mm. And we're fighting a losing battle, aren't we? I mean, academia, I think, is quite a hostile environment to conspiracy theories. It is an environment where people go at each other with critical questioning and ask people to come up with evidence for their claims. So you, you could sort of say, well, all we need to do is make the whole of society resemble a seminar room and we'll be fine. But we're fighting a losing battle, aren't we, when in reality people are using social media and the social media algorithm is sorting them into little bubbles and the social bubble becomes an epistemic bubble. I suppose it's a question for you, Kaylin. I mean, you've 
having written a book called The Misinformation Age, at, at, at the level of a society, how do we get out of it? Do we need to ban social media? What can we, what can we do? Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen um, <laughs> one way or another. Well, so Lisa was bringing up this important idea that like one prong of approach is to improve how people engage with information, how they critically engage with information. And I think that's really important. And I think the other important prong to think about is how do you shape the informational environment that people are in to be a good environment so that it's not, you know, so that every idea or piece of information that you stumble across, you don't have to worry that much and spend all that much time trying to figure out, is this true or false? Instead, most of the stuff you encounter is trustworthy. That would be ideal. And that would set us all up to believe a lot of true things. Um, so for that to happen, we do have to look at social media and the algorithms on social media and the particular communication structures and all the rules about what people are allowed to post and not post and the ways that we do and don't control speech on these platforms and think about approaches that can sift out some of the junk and make more of <laughs> the mm. stuff, good information available to more people. Do you think the measures that social media companies have taken recently have, have made any impact? There's the sort of flagging up stories as being, this is possibly misinformation. There's the, the banning Donald Trump, you know, but are these drops in the ocean? I don't think they're necessarily drops in the ocean. I think these kinds of things can be effective. Um, of course, they may not work as panaceas or work forever because you see, for example, that when Donald Trump and some other, um, you know, voices of disinformation are banned from Twitter, they move to new platforms, right? Uh, so there will be responses to try to get around it. But at the same time, um, you know, just to give a tiny microcosm, there was an attack on the US Capitol that was mostly organized on social media platforms. The people and groups involved were banned from these platforms and some of the uh, kind of harmful disinformation surrounding, uh, you know, voter fraud in the US and the stealing of the election was also suppressed on these platforms. And it seems that that move actually may have really stymied these groups from organizing mm. and recruiting new people to like further attacks. Um, so mm. these things can make a difference, I think. Mm. Good, I suppose. Yeah, it, it, there's this difficult question though, isn't there about, are we really saving democracy if the CEOs of tech companies weigh in and say you can tweet you can't tweet you can have a facebook group you can't or are we rather sort of handing over democracy to these stewards who we <laughs> trust to govern all human communication yes and who we probably don't actually trust to govern all human communication yeah. i tend to think so what's happening now is that a lot of these social media platforms were created without any kind of contract where users who are going to use them have to say, I'm going to use this in a responsible mm. way. 
Um, and so when people are being banned, it looked very, it looks very post hoc and very random. And like, you know, they're just putting their fingers on the scales, picking people, you know, Donald Trump, um, you know, whoever else. I think a better way to do this is to have some kind of rule that says, if you're gonna have a social media platform, you must require your users to sign a contract with you where they agree that they're not going to create a lot of disinformation or propaganda or purposefully spread misinformation. And if they do, they agree that their account will be deleted so that everyone is ahead of time agreeing to a practice where you're not allowed to do what Donald Trump was doing on Twitter. Mm. Um, and then it won't it won't be arbitrary, right? Who's kind of getting picked to be kicked off or censored. Kasim, mm. what do you think about you know, solutions at the level of society? Um, what, what well, more could we do? Well, I, I, I think everything that's been suggested so far makes a lot of sense. The only thing I would add to this is that if you think about um, a kind of loss of trust in established um, authority as as one of the sources of these, these problems that we're discussing. Um, I, I think one needs to have a serious look at how and why this loss of trust has come about. And 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 actually the behavior of a lot of governments in the last 20 years has, has, has to some extent, I think merited this loss of trust and certainly caused it. Um, so, uh, I mean, if you look at what's happened in the last 20 years and the rise of populism, I mean, I think you know, the way that the financial crisis was dealt with um, and the way that the Iraq war was justified um, led to a huge decline of, of trust in, 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 in um, governments and uh, in, institutions. Uh, you know, people feeling that, you know, they were being, they had been lied to, that, um, um, that you know, as, uh, people didn't care, governments didn't care about people like them and so on and so forth. And, and, and I think that actually has, has, has played a role in in making people more receptive to these sorts of, you know, these sorts of theories. So 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 actually, you know, having having governments themselves, people in authority themselves, getting their act together and actually improving the way they do things um, would would um, would would help. Also, I mean, it's actually quite important that they themselves don't go around promoting conspiracy theories, right? So. Uh, which yes. Is, which yeah. Is There's a top-down aspect sometimes, isn't there, to these yeah. theories? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, the Bush administration, of course, promoted the conspiracy, you know, promoted the conspiracy theory that you know Iraq and Al Qaeda were in cahoots. Well, that's a conspiracy theory, right? Um, which they, which they, you know, they themselves promoted at some at some point. I mean, they they wrote, you know, they pulled back from that idea and eventually denied it, but. By the time they denied it, you know, the vast majority of Americans actually believed that Al Qaeda was working together with Iraq. You know, so that's just one example of, of how, um, you know, governments themselves can be responsible for either for directly promoting conspiracy theories or for engaging in behave bad behavior mm. that makes people more receptive to conspiracy theories. And I think that's another aspect that, that actually does need to be addressed. Yeah, I'm going to start taking questions uh, from the audience in, in a moment, by the way. So if you do have a question for our panelists, please type it now and then I'll start taking them in, in a few minutes. So I thought, Kasim, your comment there, the example of um, the Iraq war, it raises this interesting point that often misinformation spreads so fast that even when you try to retract it, the retraction just moves so much more slowly than the original misinformation 
information. I'm sure that was true with that um, example from Italy that I mentioned earlier. Is there anything we can do about that problem? Kaylin, you've thought about this, haven't you? About how do you get the speed of the retraction to catch up with the speed of the misinformation? Yeah, this is really tricky because often misinformation is catchy and interesting and it's interesting completely absent of any context you know you don't have to have any special knowledge for it to be interesting because it's designed to be that way whereas retractions to misinformation are often not so catchy and you often only care about them if you already had heard the misinformation you know you don't just tell someone did you hear that meme about Donald Trump was false if they haven't seen the meme right so that puts retractions at a disadvantage compared to misinformation. Um, I mean, what that means in general is that on social media platforms and in our day-to-day -day lives, we should be really active in trying to share information about you know, stuff that's been retracted or reversed. Um, another thing that in some of my work we found that's kind of uh, counterintuitive or strange is that the things that it's easiest to retract or reverse are sometimes the most widely spread pieces of misinformation. Because if everyone thought something was true and it turns out not to be and very clearly not so, then it's very relevant to a lot of people and you can kind of retract those beliefs. Whereas things that are less widely known or shared sometimes will end up with just pockets of people continuing to believe them, even though they turned out to be false. Mm, thanks. I'll mix in some questions from the audience now. I've got some great questions being picked out by Beth Hannon. Here's one for you, Lisa, about um, individual psychology. What do we know about individual variability and vulnerability to, to misinformation? Is it that some people are very, very prone to this and other people are not? Um, or is it rather that perhaps using social media and things like that can actually make us more prone to false beliefs? It's a great question. So um, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, the kind of um, processes and mechanisms that I was referring to before, so this kind of attributing evil intentions um, to people that we already distrust or organizations that we have questions about, and um, taking on board evidence when it conforms to our existing beliefs, but not when it conflicts with them, those are extremely widespread. So I wouldn't say that there are significant individual differences there. And indeed, psychologists who have studied um, belief updating have found, and, and reasoning mistakes, uh, found that even supposedly experts um, make this exactly the same mistakes in their areas of expertise. So medical doctors who tend to be uh, vulnerable to certain types of biases when making decisions uh, about mm -hmm. diagnosis, as statisticians who still make mistakes about probability when they are not actually doing their work, but they are, um, you know, um, just engaging with things in life. So, so no, it's, it's not very easy to correct, and it doesn't seem to be um, the case that there is a particular personality type that is kind of more mm. um, uh, vulnerable to these kind of problems. Well, I think one, oh, sorry, Kaylin, you wanted to come in. I was going to say, I don't know if you've seen at least um, 
when it comes to uptake of fake news and conspiracy theories, there have been at least some number of recent studies finding links between certain types of intellectual traits and uptake on that. So things like a lack of intellectual humility, like if you always believe you're right and you're not very humble about whether you might be wrong, you're more likely to kind of fall for those things. Um, and some of that's been done, you know, by philosophers and yeah, but anyway, go on. No, go that's, on. That, that's perfect because that's exactly the complementary feature to what I was saying. So some things are extremely widespread and some things I think will make a difference. And, and actually I agree with Colin that the most of the things that will make a difference are things that we actually have a control over. So whereas these kind of biases are there, you know, um, possibly they were adaptive at some stage. I'm not sure why we are stuck with them. Um, some of the things that seem to be um, related in a significant way to misinformation uh, is something we can work on. So we can at least um, uh, early in development yeah. or through education, try and acquire habits that make us more careful in um, taking up certain type of information. Um, and indeed, you know, in some cases, you just find that some people have one bias and some people have the opposite. So it's quite interesting that people, for, for many, many years, psychologists found that people who have delusions um, tend to jump to conclusions. So they make up hypotheses with less evidence than is required maybe for people who don't have delusions to make up hypotheses which could be perceived as some kind of irrationality, right? Because you, you don't wait for all the evidence that you need to before you come up with a conclusion about what you're observing. But actually the opposite bias is what is most common in people who do not have um, delusions is conservatism. We never change our mind. We wait for too much evidence. So it's kind of interesting because there isn't a standard of rationality that tells you, okay, that's how you need to be. There are different biases that are more uh, manifest in some people mm. than in others, but it's not obvious that one is the correct way of thinking about things outside the context. Very often it's the context that determines what is the best approach that you need to take to a certain decision. Mm. Don't know one size fits all solution. Can I, there's a couple of questions here about the history of misinformation, I suppose, that, that I'll put to Kaylin. I mean, first of all, the printing press was first used to mass produce manuals used by inquisitors to track and prosecute witches. Is social media just amplifying something that was already there? And then another question that I suppose is about this idea of top-down misinformation that we've heard about dodgy dossiers that were used to justify the Iraq war this idea of propaganda you know misinformation used for political purposes by leaders by political leaders is is as old as civilization is is what we're seeing now in a way a, dem, a democratization process that now anyone can do what used to be the preserve of people with access to resources yeah i mean that's interesting because um you know hooking up to the printing press it didn't used to be that anybody could get hold of a printing mm. press and print a lot of propagandistic flyers now anyone can get online and if they learn some things about misinformation, propaganda, and online influence can start to forward an agenda by taking advantage of social media platforms to spread propaganda. Um, so I suppose there is some democratization there, not necessarily in a way that we might like. <laughs> uh, 
regarding this other question about, you know, is this all the same? Has it been going on forever? And the answer is kind of yes and kind of no. And this harkens back to something I was bringing up more at the beginning of the discussion that, um, you know, in response to all these changes in media, like the printing press and radio, you would see uh, problems with propaganda and misinformation arising in a lot of cases after these new forms of media were invented. And then you often see a kind of cultural evolutionary response where society figures out how we're going to deal with that. Okay, so we're only going to have some set number of radio stations that are allowed to broadcast and we're going to prevent other people from broadcasting using different means um, or we're going to require you to have a license to you know spread certain kinds of information and so you see those responses mm. and part of what i was talking about earlier about the speeding up of um, changes in media is that there just isn't time to develop responses that then prevent these problems. Yeah, there was a big decision made, wasn't there, when governments decided that the social media companies would not be held liable for what was on their platforms, but rather the users would be liable. That's huge, isn't it? Because if you, if you imagine if they'd done the same with printing presses, and now publishers are no longer liable for what goes in the newspapers, you can just print whatever your readers send in, doesn't matter. We would have been seeing similar problems with the printing press, wouldn't we? Yeah, or I mean, with newspapers, right? If you said whatever readers sent in, mm. you print as if it's matter of fact or whatever any person writes for your um, newspaper, you can just print and you have absolutely mm. no liability. Uh, you certainly could imagine some of these issues arising. Yeah, there's a question here about which pieces of information are more effective, simpler ones or more complex? Are we it battling against Occam's razor, the idea that simpler ideas are more likely to be true. It's a good question. I, I put that to Kasim, I think. Sometimes conspiracy theories are incredibly complicated, aren't they? They, they seem far from simple sometimes. Yeah, I, I think it's not it's not simplicity that's that, that's the issue. I mean, you can think of you know conspiracy theories as um, as stories, you know, as narratives that are that are. Um, offer offer a kind of explanation of events, and if you ask, well, you know, why is a particular story or narrative attractive to to the audience? I mean, as leaving aside the political stuff that I was talking about earlier, um, you, you know, conspiracy theories, you know, uh, ha have many of the attractions of good fiction. You know, there's a, you, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there are heroes and there are villains, and um, you know. Part of the attraction mm. of these theories is, 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 you know, is, is the complexity and the ingenuity of the of the of the conspirators that these theories talk about. And actually, the great that that you know, in a way, the more complicated kind of funky theories um, are more uh, can be more attractive um, than than you know something very um, something very simple. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's 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 really simple versus complex, but something else that's going on in these cases. Mm. It's a question for, for you, Kaylin, about circularity, I suppose, where we decide who to trust based on their track records of telling the truth, but determining that track record itself relies on our judgments about what's true. Doesn't this run the risk of reinforcing our biases rather than helping us free us from misinformation? Well, Kasim was talking earlier about the idea of reality biting, and I think 
it might be useful to bring up an idea that um, if you look across different arenas of belief, sometimes reality bites and sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes there's a lot of pushback and evidence from the world where if people say something, you can go verify whether what they said was true or not. You know, maybe look at someone who's predicting elections. They make the prediction, then the election is held, and then you could see whether they were wrong or right, or usually under most circumstances, I should say, you can see that. Um, and so in those kinds of cases, it should be quite easy to verify someone's track record. There are other things that are harder to verify. So if you look at evolution denialism, um, often it's the case that denying evolutionary theory, reality isn't gonna bite you in any way, nothing's gonna happen to you if you deny it. Uh, there aren't, you know, discrete mm. events happening in the future that are going to be predicted by evolution. antibiotic resistance, I suppose. That's something. Yeah, okay, there's one. Except most people who deny evolution believe in what they call microevolution, that bacteria can evolve a lot larger animals. Mm. Um, yeah, so in some cases it should be easy and in other cases more difficult. On this on this issue of reality biting, I mean, a, a lovely example currently is QAnon, right? So there's this terrible, I mean, terrible kind of crisis of confidence among QAnon conspiracy theorists who are this, you know, confidently waiting for Trump to call, you know, to have martial law and arrest, you know, arrest every his his opponents, uh, and it didn't happen, right? And this was this was what the theory predicted would happen. So that's a case where reality bit. And, and it's interesting how that, that community is kind of split into two. So those who've now come up with, you know, further conspiracy theories to explain this weird, you know, this weird event, including, as I understand it, the theory that Biden is in fact Q is one theory. Uh, but then there are also others who, other, other folks in this, in this world who now say, oh, well, you know, we were obviously conned and now I don't know what to believe and so on. Um, and it's a reality bit, right? <laughs> That's the periphery, isn't it? Those, those are the people where, you can bring them back, but people who really want to uh, reconcile a theory with the facts somehow will always come up with something. Yeah, there's a question here about how to approach people. You know, suppose we're trying to uh, bring someone round. We think they're slipping into an epistemic bubble. The question is, should we take George Lakoff's truth sandwich approach in which you state the truth first or is it more like dealing with someone in distress in which you might think the first thing to do is to listen to their concerns you know, take them seriously? Or are these very, or are they just very different situations requiring different responses? What do you think, Lisa? I, I don't know. It's a very, very difficult question to answer. And um, people in psychology and sociology are doing lots and lots of studies with conflicting results about what works and what doesn't. There seem to be quite widespread agreement that facts by themselves won't help. So just repeating what you think is true and why you think it's true, it's because mm. the evidence supports it, is not going to get you very far. Um, some research that I like suggests that building a common ground, especially with people you know personally, maybe members of your family, of your uh, friends, um, will help. So think about what it is that you have in common. What are you concerned about? So in the case of COVID-19, of course, you both want to keep alive. You both want to protect the people around you are vulnerable and so on. Um, 
and, and try to build quite a lot of an emotional connection with them based on the interests that you share and building from there bits at a time. It may be a very long process. Again, it's not an easy fix. It's something that may span across a number of conversations and experiences. But the fact that people respect you for the way you behave towards them is going to help you gain their trust in some way, um, even if he might not give you an easy victory. And I, I like that approach a lot, I think, uh, trying to build common ground. And also, you know, before Kaylin was talking about something absolutely important, which is responsibility, right? Um, the importance of saying, you know, you have responsibility over what you share. You have responsibility to kind of assess the information that you are subject to. But sometimes that's really hard to use that responsibility well and to know exactly what that responsibility requires. And I think that a lot of people need to see that the kind of things that they hear and then they share again and they repeat um, actually have dramatic effects on how the world changes and how the debates develop. Because sometimes we think we're just kind of, you know, reporting something interesting and curious that had made us think. And actually what we're doing is sometimes without even realizing it, giving credibility to that story and making it a much bigger fast than it would be otherwise. So I think also working on that idea, you know, that everybody's kind of responsible for their own little bubble in, in some sense, not completely, but to mm. some extent. Ideally avoid bubbles at all, right? I mean, the, the, the bubbliness of social media is, is definitely part of the problem, isn't it? If we could all have networks that blurred into each other so that we're regularly in contact with people at two, three, four degrees of separation, these I problems wouldn't be so yeah. bad. Also, I think that's the beauty of social media, isn't it? Like that you can get in the shoes of people that are so different from you. They live in completely different environment. They have a different education. Um, in the past, that was not possible. The people you were talking to were the people in, in your village, the people in the pub, the people in your classroom. You could not think, yeah. okay, what does the Trump supporter think now? And now I can find out. I can go and see these conversations. I can kind of engage in some way. And I think, you know, we shouldn't see only the negative aspects. Yes, there are bubbles, but bubbles can be burst. Um, and also, if you have the interest in looking at what the other person's perspective is, you have a means to do so. And before you didn't, I think. You were very much mm. constrained by your geographical location and by, you know, the kind yeah. of people that you happen to know and mix with. So there's, there's some advantages to social media then, you know, along with the disadvantages. I, th I think we've lost a lot of that you know, face-to-face, -face, particularly during the pandemic, face-to-face -face interaction with people who have different views from ourselves that can actually be really valuable. Yeah, so um, it reminded me of, a, of an event we did a few months ago on anti-vaxxers and some of the things Heidi Larson was saying in that event, if I can do a little cross-promotion, that she was saying, you've got to beat people halfway. You know, you've got to understand that they're, in many cases, their fears are coming from a from a reasonable place and they're not really anti-vaxxers they're just slightly vaccine hesitant they're thinking should i you know put this substance into my own child and you have to try and sort of meet them as as reasonable people and that's very difficult sometimes particularly on social media there's can a I, quick, oh, yep, can i add something related to what lisa was saying about this idea of yeah. 
trust building, you know, getting a sort of bridge of trust and what you were saying about anti-vaxxing. Another thing that people talk about, which um, I, I like the research on is about rather than sharing facts, using your kind of personal experience to mm. ground uh, trust with others and express to them what you're mm. trying to express. Like yeah. maybe like you, I'm a parent and I want what's best for my children. And I'm really afraid of making the wrong choice. What I'm also afraid of is my children getting measles or infecting a sick child with measles. And that really scares me. And that's why I choose to vaccinate. So like those kind of personal narratives, I think research mm. shows very effective. Yeah, great. So we've got time for one more question. So doesn't what we've been witnessing regarding misinformation and democracy count as evidence that more paternalistic or less democratic government is more favorable? Isn't it exactly what Plato warned us about? in Gorgias and the Republic. And you certainly can see other governments around the world that take a much more restrictive approach to the flow of information than Britain or the US. So what do you think? Kasim? <laughs> um, Should we I, give up, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of democracy. I mean, um, I think the, the answer is not to go for a kind of more paternalistic system, but to have uh, a, a democracy with better, safe, better safeguards and better regulation against, uh, you know, against this sort of uh, thing that we've, we've been talking about. And then the, you know, the argument mm -hmm. is, oh, but then how, how is that a democracy? Um, but I don't, you know, I, I mean, of course, in a democracy, you have, you have free speech, but of course, it, you know, even in a democracy, there are restrictions on free speech. There are certain things that you can't say within the law in, in, mm. in democracies. Uh, and I don't, I don't see, you know, who decided that in a democracy, social media has to be a free for all. And that if it's not a free for all, there's no longer a democracy. I just don't think that follows, you know, at all. And actually, mm. in, a, in, a, in a healthy democracy, what you want is for social media not to be a free for all, just as, you know, just as the, the, the print media is not a free for all. Um, you know, they need mm. uh, it, it, this odd idea that somehow, you know, free speech requires, requires a democracy to allow anybody on social media to say just about anything. You know, but when it comes to organizing a riot, well, then I think it's perfectly reasonable in a, even, you know, in, in a democracy for people to step in and say, sorry, yeah. guys, you can't do that. And it's still a democracy. Mm. I'd also want to make a big distinction between restricting information to people for political reasons, which is, for example, something that the Chinese government does, yeah. um, and trying to protect the informational environments of people. I mean, so the latter notion is one where you promote people's ability to thrive, to know true things, to protect their own interests, to make decisions that are good for them based on the interests that they have. And in order to do that, they can't be in a poisoned informational environment. Nobody can make good choices if they're constantly bombarded by bad information. And so it's really more of a notion where you're protecting people's ability to choose and act in their best interest by mm. trying to weed out bad information. Mm. So good thought to end on, I think. I'm afraid we're out of time. My apologies to everyone who had a question that we didn't get to. I, I knew we'd only get to a selection, but thanks very much to everyone who attended. And thanks very much to our panelists, Kasim Kassam, Lisa Bortolotti and Kaylin O'Connor for a fantastic discussion.